Our guest today has been around for quite a while, racing both on the road and track. But this year, he went on quite an incredible role during the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, becoming the first Kiwi to win four golds in a single Commonwealth Games. He won the points race, the individual pursuit, the team pursuit, and most impressively, the road race. Hope you enjoy our chat today with Aaron Gate, today on Bobby and Yens. All right, everyone. Welcome, Aaron Gate, to Bobby and Yens. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here with two uh, two legends. <laughs> oh man, well, we're we're a big fan of yours. We have been. Um, I have a, a question. Does anyone ever call you AA Ron? <laughs> I do. We had a running joke myself and um, the logistics lady at Equiblue Sport, whose name was Denise, and we still refer to it. She still we still stay in touch, and she's still D nice, and I'm still AA Ron. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So for our listeners, Aaron is from New Zealand. How did it happen that you didn't become an all-black rugby player and you picked cycling instead? Or did you ever play rugby as a kid, I suppose, yes? Uh, I played rugby in the backyard, but the reason I'm a cyclist is my hand-eye coordination is lacking. My my ball skills are not great, and um, yeah, <laughs> cycling sort of became the, the natural sport uh, beyond that, and um A more boring side of that is I actually had um, epilepsy as a kid, so my overprotected mother was not so keen on the head contact thing when uh, when I was growing up. So I actually played football more than um, more than rugby, which is yeah a bit of an unknown for for most Kiwis. But um, yeah, I just uh, got into cycling at school, and that kind of took over all the all the other sports I was doing at the time, and never never looked back. Well, we, we look back, and I'm not putting my hand in the fire for this, but I do believe you are our first guest from New Zealand. So tell cool. us a little bit about what you just said, starting in school, cycling in New Zealand. What what was it like? And then, yeah, jumping over across the pond and, and, and now being based in Girona, Spain. Tell us, fill in the gaps a little bit there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... New Zealand is a relatively very small country compared to, to Europe as a whole, with European individual nations and, and Europe as a, as a continent, and also the States. Like it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Auckland, which is the, the biggest city, and most other New Zealanders outside of Auckland will say that Auckland's not actually part of New Zealand. <laughs> so that's something, something else to contend with. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, or for a, for a small country, to, or, and that it is also largely rugby-dominated, um, New Zealand still has quite a quite a rich history in cycling um, sort of worldwide. There's sort of a few riders that, that sort of paved the way for, for Kiwis. Um, I'm sure you, you both raced with um, Julian Dean, and he was like a big, big idol of mine when I, was, when I was growing up, what he did on the world stage. And I think just as probably as sort of cycling coverage managed to become more accessible. It was sort of once it moved beyond just sourcing old VHS tapes of like Tour de France from three years ago and actually being able to watch stuff more <laughs> closer to being live when I was when I was growing up, probably 
sort of is what sort of stemmed a boom from from Kiwi cyclists. Like now, there's there's more Kiwis than ever in the World Tour and, and racing abroad. And I think it's just it's great to see that that um, I guess yeah, technology has probably just helped bring cycling a bit closer to to people that are growing up and to to get inspired by it. So I think it's uh, it's definitely something that's growing, but. But rugby for sure is still the the country's number one sport. We all love to tune into an All Blacks game and watch and um, idolise what <laughs> definitely something that most Kiwi kids idolise is being an All Black still. So it's um, something that definitely is is still a dream of most Kiwi kids. So um, Auckland, it's on the South Island, correct? No, it's North, the Island. North Island. All right, Ian. You had you had a fifty fifty chance of getting it right. <laughs> yeah, apparently, yes, indeed. Um, so, um, well, but my question is, uh, for um, our listeners, they don't know exactly about the location of um, New Zealand. You are further south of Australia. That means you're closer to the southern pole. It is not a tropical hot island. What are the weather conditions there for a bike rider? You have a, you, you basically have more or less British weather there. Would that be correct? Like uh... English, British weather? No, nah, I'd say British weather to most places would be a massive insult. Um, <laughs> no, nah, it's um, it's actually not that bad. It depends where you are. Like it's um, all New Zealand itself, although it's a relatively small country, it's a very long country. So what you get at the top of the the North Island is very different to what you get at the bottom of the South Island. And and as we speak, actually, the New Zealand's sort of most um, most famous and longest running bike races on at the moment, the Tour of Southland, which is notorious for its bad weather. It takes place um, in spring, so it's kind of like New Zealand's equivalent of the the early season classics in, in Belgium, um, so you can get a bit of everything. Sometimes you get a notoriously good wet, good year where it's 20 degrees and, and blue skies, and then uh, other years it's been snowing and, and hailing, and, and yeah, there's always... There's always wind. It's sort of that there's nothing between that part of the country and Antarctica. So what you get <laughs> coming through that through that uh, <laughs> that ocean there is can be pretty horrific. Um, but it's it's what makes it such an exciting bike race as well. Whereas you go right up north and um, it's almost it's, it's not tropical, but it's it's more like a an island climate. A um, lot less rainfall and very temperate all year round and and Auckland's kind of in between the two it's surrounded by a lot of water so we do get a lot of rain at particular times of year but it's definitely not um it's not a bad place to be like I, I grew up cycling and literally didn't own any leg warmers until I moved until I did my first training camp down in the South Island in winter so it's um sort of the South Islands will take take the piss out of the Aucklanders for being the soft the soft cocks of um of the country because it's not that bad <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the, you know, your, your last little phrase there kind of um, uh, inspired this next question. <laughs> What is the deal with the competitive nature between the Kiwis and the Aussies? I mean, you know, growing up, you, you just felt that tension all the time. But is there a tension? And what is the basis of that competitiveness and that, that you know, that back and forth that you guys seem to have quite often? Yeah, there's, there's a bit of there's kind of two sides to it because when you're when you're racing as like a as like an Oceania contingent, it's very much like there's no camaraderie whatsoever. It's like we're out to get those motherfuckers. Um, but <laughs> but but when we're removed from 
from our own countries and, and plopped in Europe or the States that almost like we come together and, and not race as one, but we are prepared to be a lot more friendly than we would be if we were just at home. So I think it's probably just the closest thing you get to to racing the world when you're when you're younger is racing Australians. Like my first trip for cycling was going to race the Tour of Canberra in uh, the capital of Australia. And so I think that's kind of, from a young age, you learn that like, right, these guys are the, the enemy, we need to beat them. And I think that stems from both sports too, whether it's rugby or, or football or tennis or whatever, it's um, the Aussies are the number one rivals. And then you sort of, you move on from there, but it just, it's always, <laughs> it's always run pretty deep. If, even when you're watching the, the Rugby World Cup or whatever it is, it's um, Aussies the team you always want to beat. So it's, it's, I think it's just something that's uh, in our blood. <laughs> so once you um, started cycling and you picked that as your sport, when did you specialize in track or did you ever specialize? Did you ever take a conscious decision? Hey, I'm be a track rider more than a roadie or how did that part of your career came along? Um, it kind of, I, I kind of fell into track cycling in a way. Like I, um, started just with road and then when summertime rolled around and it was track cycling season, I mean, we, there was one thing we did for some reason in New Zealand, track cycling was a, was a summer sport, I guess, because we only had outdoor velodromes, but, um, it was also in line with the, with the European, um, season. So that was something I started doing and um, really enjoyed it. Like the way you can just get some some quick fire racing and you can go down to a, like a Friday night at the Manukau Velodrome, which is where I, the closest velodrome to where I grew up. And you can do four or five races in one evening. It's something you don't get in road cycling. You get all these chances to try different tactics and um, different ways, different ways to win. And I think it's something that kind of um, I found really interesting and um It probably helped that I started to get some results, so I was selected to go to the, the Junior World Championships in South Africa um, as my second year junior, and then that was enough to get me selected for a national team to go and race uh, overseas. But we primarily actually were based in Belgium, racing on the road, but it was with a with a long term track focus because. The way it works from New Zealand is basically our, our funding from the government comes from whatever sport we can win um, medals at the Olympic Games in. And New Zealand traditionally has done quite well in, in track cycling uh, based off the, the result that Jesse Sargent and Hayden Ralston and Sam Bewley and Wes Goff um, got in. And Mark Ryan, they, they took a bronze medal in Beijing Olympics, which was a massive step for New Zealand cycling. And that was enough to sort of get the money that that cycling needed to put some Kiwis racing overseas. And so that, that was kind of the pathway for me was through track to get any sort of racing overseas was how that came about. So that was, um, yeah, kind of just, I've always been someone that just goes with the flow. So to answer your question, it wasn't really a, a conscious decision. It was just whatever opportunities were presented, I had to take. And that was, that was from track cycling. I, I, I have to totally agree with that. I mean, you, you just, you're a bike racer, right? It doesn't matter if it's on the road or if it's on the track. Um, but tell us a little bit about the early years when you were racing for the, the and post chain reaction team. I mean, you were on that team for four years and then you got to go on to, to aqua blue and then, you know, the current team that you're on now. But I mean, that, that's a, 
a big step. Were you were you based over in Europe like the whole year, or were you just kind of picking and choosing your races back then? Um, kind of a bit of both. Like that's where and post worked really well. Like Kurt Bogarts was um, was pretty flexible with us track riders. He sort of knew that when we showed up, we'd race well and. And it was more of like a, <laughs> a quality over quantity thing with with the trackies, so we could do the world cha- like back then the world championships were were March, so we could do that and then have a bit of a, a rebuild and show up ready to race. So we'd miss that that early season, which, if anything, coming from the the southern hemisphere was a, was a better thing because so many um, Kiwis and Aussies would be at that age would be so enthusiastic, shoot straight over from enjoying a nice nice summer <laughs> down under and then be stuck in snow and and crosswinds and hail and everything in Belgium and just be thinking, why did I do this to myself? And come April, they'd be burnt out and ready to go home to mum and dad. But <laughs> I think, if anything, being a track cyclist in that regard was a benefit because it meant, yeah, it could, had a reason to start the season a little bit later and, and come in, um, race fit and, and ready to go and kind of just um get stuck in from there so that was that was that was cool and it was something that yeah it was it was a balance because some years was not it wasn't full years my my girlfriend at the time would uh now wife she would come over for stints and then i think it was 2015 that we probably did our first like full six month stint together over there and before that she was just working and would come over for a couple of weeks here and there and I'd be trying to minimize my time in Europe but having the other half over with me for the full six months was a good reason to be there and get stuck into the whole season um so yeah it was kind of in those early days it was definitely a a bit of both and even before that with the national team we'd sort of do two months in the in Belgium and two months in the states and um yeah it was I was always a little bit disjointed and maybe that's something that held me back from um, reaching my full potential from a young age was not having a, a full season and um, being able to connect like a full a full block of, of racing into into a whole program. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, was still, it was still good fun and I, no real regrets there. Now that you're 31, um, you're much younger than Bobby and me, but <laughs> for a cyclist, you're... In, in the middle age, I, I would say. Um, so you must have seen quite a change in track cycling, right? I mean, the speed, the gears they use these days is just insane. If you compare your best time, like let's say in a four-kilometer pursuit at the, at the age of 18 to now, why do you think, what is the biggest change? Riders just getting stronger, more specialized, or why is it everybody goes so incredibly fast these days? with uh, these uh, massive gears uh yeah well, that's well that's a, a great point and i think what kind of makes um track cycling still so interesting to me because traditionally it was always a a young man's sport you know guys like me would come into the sport and, and move on to it's get started with the track and open a pathway to the road and then kind of move on but um it's still the way that track just keeps you're still going around in circles, but the so many aspects of the sport have completely changed. Like we're now doing medicines that you average close to 60 Ks an hour for, for 50 minutes. It's um, something that, yeah, just wouldn't have happened um, 10 or so years ago. And it's just, it's definitely a big part is, is the gears. Um, and also 
just the understanding of like in a team pursuit context anyway the understanding of, of aerodynamics has changed a lot and the way that people are making the most of positions and pushing the the uci position limits to the absolute um limit and if anything it's with these new changes that are coming in next year it's i think it's just going to continue to get faster and faster and i think as people begin to understand the benefit of going to bigger and bigger gears too it's going to be um more and more change as we head towards the, the next olympics and time's getting faster and faster so it's it's an exciting part uh, sport to be a part of and i think um yeah it's kind of definitely when i first started the, the times and gears and everything i wouldn't have dreamed of doing like we used to do strength efforts on what we do warm-up efforts on now like it's um it's just definitely shifted it's shifted massively in the 10 or so years that i've been involved Getting to kind of like the meat and the real reason why you popped up on our radar uh, to be on this podcast in the first place was this year's Commonwealth Games. Um, you know, you go there, you win the points race, you win the individual pursuit, you win the team pursuit. Okay, that's awesome. You're on a good roll. You're on the track. But then, then you win the road race. I mean, were you just on a burner of a week? <laughs> or was this like your master plan from from the beginning of the season? Um, I'd, I'd really like to say it was the master plan, but it was kind of one of those things that, uh, yeah, I think it just all slotted into place. Like it was, like it probably, if anything, started way back around COVID time when um, racing basically was shut down. Like I'd just signed with this new... Kiwi team, um, Black Spoke Racing, and we couldn't race. Like we we couldn't get to Europe. We couldn't do anything. And it was the if anything, it was the restrictions getting back into New Zealand that was the problem. Like if we left, we couldn't come back. So um, for a lot of guys and even the management and staff and everything, that was a, a massive problem. Like I was kind of prepared to be like, oh, well, let's do anything to to get some racing because you can't just. Um, sort of the bleachers all, all year but um I, yeah i mean a lot of the races were meant to do were cancelled too and it was the same for same for everybody but even once other guys started racing again then it was sort of in this awkward window we're now getting close to the close to the tokyo olympics which was delayed a year but it was always the the big goal for me so i kind of um campbell and myself who were both racing for the team campbell stewart that is who's now with um, bike exchange we were both um with black spoke at the time and we made the decision to stay in new zealand and just focus on the on the team pursuit for for that year so we we stayed back there and went directly to to tokyo after basically a, a year and a half build up for this one event and i think just having that huge amount of um time was a massive luxury that i haven't had in the past because there's always whether it's a track race or a, a road race there's always been another event in you know maximum six weeks time so it's never I've never had that massive off-season, pre-season build-up um, that even like roadies, pure roadies would get. And so it was a, a good chance just to really focus on strength work and get to, um, yeah, like I guess develop my my muscles to that that those bigger gears that are coming in. Um, and if anything, that kind of has taken a long time to see the, the benefits of that. And I think this season has kind of been... Um, been a byproduct of, of a base a massive track build has kind of flowed into my best ever road season too. So I think um, 
yeah, I mean, like I said, it would be nice to say that the, the road race there was the master plan, but I actually kind of, the road, the, the track before it was, went like super well, better than I was, could have ever imagined. And so I was sort of like, okay, got, we've got, I was the only one of um, non-world tour riders in our team for New Zealand of total of six riders. So I was sort of like, guys, I'm here to support you in this race. Like I've, I've sort of had my moment in the, in the limelight. I'm happy to do what I can to, to help out here. And then through the nature of racing, I ended up in a breakaway of, of 12 riders as this, as the sole Kiwi. And if anything, I gave me the pure luxury of just doing the bare minimum and sitting in for most of the, most of the day. Cause I was like, Hey, I've got, I've got five other teammates that I was here helping sitting back there. So I, I don't have to contribute here. And then once it came down to the, the final few laps when there was definitely no chance the group was coming back, I could get stuck into into racing properly and doing what I had to do. And um, I think it was just, yeah, it was definitely a blinder of a day, but I was running on fumes by that point too because it was a good three weeks of, of track build-up beforehand and tapering for the track, which doesn't really compute to 160. I mean, even though it was only 160K, which is short by, by most road race standards, it was still um, enough to sort of, <laughs> take me right to the right to the edge of what I was capable of that particular time. So, um, looking back a little bit, when did you know you're gonna be really good on the track? You or, or you go into the Commonwealth Games like into the unknown and go, maybe I got a bronze medal and I'd be happy, or you knew by just the numbers you put out in training, the times you achieved in your training sessions you go i think i have a chance for a gold medal at some of these events when did you know you're gonna be good um i was i was pretty i mean i was probably more one of the more confident i'd been for a for a track competition um to date like i'd that year i hadn't actually done much track work like since the since the olympic games in tokyo i The only track racing I'd really done was the Champions League, which was kind of just, um, yeah, for something to do in the, <laughs> in the off season. And then went back for the for the Oceania Games to get the points I needed for the World Champs. And I lined up there and, and won the points race and the Omnium and the individual pursuit and the scratch race. So I was sort of like, okay, well, clearly I'm, I haven't completely lost all of my <laughs> track racing form. So at least I knew that I could still race race on the track and um, we went into a training camp in, in Gretchen, which is the track that uh, lots of guys, well, we're going to just use that track to, to beat the, the hour record and you know that track well too, Jens, you've done quite a few laps of it. <laughs> and uh, still a big picture of you on the wall, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did our build up there and we started training and Pretty quickly, I knew that the, the form was good, and the main focus still for us there was the the team pursuit. And um, once all the guys started to to really fire in our last week of training, I was like, okay, this is going to be a it's going to be a good campaign for the Kiwis. And it was um, yeah, just um, quite reassuring to know that we sort of had had the form and had the legs to go there and and uh, stick one to our competition. <laughs> Well, I mean, you being the first Kiwi to win four gold medals in a Commonwealth Games, three of them on the track, one of them on the road. I know next to nothing about track, <laughs> despite the fact that I am really starting to meet people and we have more and more track cyclists on the podcast. So I'm learning a little bit through through our guests and whatnot. But 
what you know like the equipment and your setup i guess on the track and then you i would assume because i lived at the olympic training center when the guys were preparing for the the team pursuit in the you know for the 92 and 96 olympics that they would also do a lot of of road riding right it's not like they just only had a track bike and use that track bike but what is your setup like and like you know what is the brand of frame that you use like your preferred setup on the track and then do you try to emulate that as much as possible on on your road bike like what what are the two setups that you have from you know the Omnium bike to the, the individual pursuit bike, which I would assume would be the same as the team pursuit bike to your, to your road bike. Um, yeah, it's, there's a few different elements there and they're all quite different. Like for example, the, the team pursuit bike, I through numerous bike fits and a lot of, um, a lot of laps with, testing CDA um, sort of dialed in the best possible position that I could that I could still ride in because the the other challenges we if you are only doing an individual pursuit or only doing an hour record you could probably be a bit more extreme with your your line of sight and how far ahead you can see and everything like that but for a team pursuit you've got this challenge where you need to be able to ride a really clean line um when you're on the front for the guys behind that you're minimizing the distance you're traveling and also keeping the bike traveling as as straight as possible so the guy following you is getting as much slipstream but then you also need to be able to follow the wheel in front of you by a few millimeters to get as much recovery time as possible and the and the laps that you're doing in the train um so it's like it's something you really have to consider when you're putting your arms like this and you're like you're literally like oh is my eye there or is it over my hands or it's um something that took a lot of time to to work out the right position and um then that was simply a case of saying giving my tt bike to the mechanic and saying oh can you please try and set this up as closely as possible to my pursuit bike so that whenever i'm training on my time trial bike or racing on my time trial bike i know that it's the same position as what i'd be racing in the, in the pursuit on the track but then the the bunch race bike for the Omnium and the points race and everything is completely different because I race a like I'm 180, 181 centimeters tall. I race a 54 centimeter road bike with a, a 140 stem, but on a um, always slammed. Of course, there should never be any headset spaces in your in your bike. But um, on the track, <laughs> we have a. We have quite a bizarre rule from the UCI, which is actually changing next year, where you're the front leading edge of your um, your drops on your on your bunch racing bike for the for the points race and everything can't be more than fifty millimeters in front of the front axle, which doesn't apply to sprinters and it doesn't apply to to road bikes and road races for some reason. It's just in place on the on the track. So what it's meant is, although I ride a fifty four centimeter road bike I actually ride a 61 centimeter track bike to get enough reach because I can only use a 110 mil stem um so it's this is getting quite geeky obviously sorry guys but it's um I love it <laughs> something that <laughs> maybe your geekier listeners would appreciate but it's yeah it's, there's a massive difference there um in the, in the bunch racing space because it's the longer you go, the more in general, the more aerodynamic you are because your back is stretched out and your your arms are not so not so kinked and everything else. So, um, 
yeah, it's it's kind of a that's one big difference that we have between the two. But spending enough time on it is, I mean, the saddle essentially the saddle's in the same position. It's just the bike is where the where the handlebars are and the relative nature of the the steerage tube and the fork and everything is quite different between the two bikes. So it does take a little bit to get the handling back, um, jump, chopping and changing between the two, but eventually they're all just second nature and and part of <laughs> part of you. <laughs> I was hoping that you would hit on it. Like crank arm length, mm-hmm. is it the same on all those bikes? <laughs> because like, you know, I'm old school. I, I have 175 crank arm, millimeter crank arm since I was 15 years old. And yeah. the more I start to see like the crank arms are getting shorter and shorter and I'm still fighting against it, but I understand opening up the hip angle, all this stuff, you know, you can get lower, but yeah. Do you change your, your crank arm length from all those bikes? I mean... That's four bikes. Wait, four different bikes we're talking about, right? Your Omnium bike, your Pursuit road Team bike. Pursuit bike, your time trial bike, and yep. your road race bike. Yeah. Um, and I've kind of, maybe I'm showing my age here too, but I've kind of been through the evolution of, of crank arm length too. Because when I bought my, this is going back a little bit, sorry to drag this answer out, but um, <laughs> back when I first started track cycling, my first track bike I ever bought, just happened to come with these super nice Campagnolo Pista 165 track cranks. And the first thing the coach said to me was like, mate, you need some 175s, get rid of those. So I've sold them on and I hate to think what I sold them for versus what they're worth now, but that's a whole nother story of regret. Um, <laughs> and, and now it's gone full circle and all of my bikes bar my um, road race bike have 165 cranks on now. Um, so yeah, pursuing time trial and also recent, fairly recently in the last couple of years, I've gone to one six fives on my, on my bunch racing bike on the track also, just because the, the drop from the, the saddle to the handlebars is a tad more extreme than what I run on my road bike. And as you say, with, with the hip angle, being able to be opened up a bit more on the shorter cranks, it allows me to, to get in that lower position, um, but easier. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from values.com, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. Now, back to our chat with Aaron. Alrighty, another geeky question. Um, Tyus, you still use the old uh, fashioned glue-ups or tubeless or what's the story there? And... Um, for our listeners, do you remember the gears you used winning the points race at the Commonwealth Games and the gears you used in the individual team's pursuit? 
the, the, the size of your chain ring and uh, sprocket, just some, some geek knowledge for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we still use the old school uh, glue-on Vittoria Pista, um, Pista tires on the, on the track, pumped up to 14 bar, I think it was 15 bar, 220 PSI. Um, really pinging. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and the points race gear, my favorite ever gear, because it's just you go into the chainring box and you pick the biggest one that's in there and you pick the biggest sprocket that's in the sprocket box. 70, 70 by 18. 70? Um, 70 yeah. chainring? Yeah. Where you find <laughs> yeah. them? You got to be hand me. No. <laughs> they're actually a special one uh they come from a company called digirit and they're they're carbon fiber because obviously a, a challenge the bigger the chain ring the more material and the heavier it is but these carbon fiber chain rings are actually super light and um still run really nice with the with the chain so um they're a nice nice luxury that we have um team pursuit i think was 60 I'm kind of guessing here. I think it was 66.15. So still pretty big on the front, but um, yeah, just a much, much bigger gear in general with that, that smaller sprocket on the on the back. Um, I've always been someone that that likes to to spin a spin a higher cadence than most of my most of my teammates, and that's probably only something that um, has shifted in the last couple of years after I said with this this big block of strength work and everything I've done I've actually <laughs> developed the ability to push a bigger gear and I've realized that maybe I just liked smaller gears in the past because I was never strong enough <laughs> so it's been uh, yeah that's been something that's, that's changed a little bit over the last few years well um, I, I'm kind of in shock and awe that you guys are using 70s and 66s I mean I'm, I'm trying to think the biggest chain ring I ever used was I, I was I was and always will be a fan of the osymmetric chain rings. And when they first started, they were 52. <laughs> then I got him to make me a 54. And then I right towards the end, he made me a 56. And I think he made Chris Froome a 58. So 58. Yeah, 11 was the biggest gear I've ever used. I can't even imagine what seeing a, a 64, 66, or 70-tooth chainring looks on a bike. That is that is crazy. That is I never crazy. realized that isometrics only come in even numbers, too. Was that the way that they were Yeah, it's the it's basically two non-circle oh, people be, want to say. Yeah, it has to even. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's not... Um, it's not oval, it's osymmetric. And yep. Jens loves when I talk about <laughs> osymmetric chain rings. Absolutely loves it. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> Bobby, I love you to pieces. But I remember Bobby and my teammate, we needed one mechanic just for Bobby's osymmetric chain rings, and he would be working from noon until midnight every single day. And we would have every other mechanic do, hey, I can do 10 bikes at the same time. <laughs> Holy smokes. You know, I guess it's essentially impossible to get the the front mech in the right place, isn't it? So he could be there all day trying to work out where it yep. should be. Yep. Listen, Chris Froome won the Tour de France four times, the Giro, the Vuelta. Um, somebody figured it out. 
Um, I think the moral to that story is work smarter, not longer. Um, but <laughs> you know, some of those mechanics that we had back in the day were so used to doing the exact same thing. And then when my bike came through, it was just like they, they freaked out, but, uh, yeah, there's yeah. been plenty of, plenty of stories like that over the years with, with all sorts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. Um, question then for because i'm i recently kind of came to this epiphany and um you know okay i'll be 51 in november um end of november and i'm still battling with the disc brake thing obviously you don't have to worry about brakes on the track but for you on the road are you a disc brake guy or a rim brake guy um i've always been a rim brake guy because i've kind of gone I've been on, well, you're kind of asking the right person to be fair because I've been on both sides of the spectrum at the wrong time. So we we went in 2018 with Aqua Blue. We moved from Ridley's with rim brake, Shimano Durace to these 3T one by bikes with SRAM Force disc brakes. And we were one of only, I think, two or three teams I think there was Rumpot and maybe one other that was using disc brakes at the time. And we just suffered because the, I mean, the infrastructure wasn't there yet. The, the neutral service didn't have disc brake. Well, we had to provide disc brake wheels to neutral service every race. And the one by thing was a massive headache because you were talking about your um, mechanic complaining about your your one rider and you've got isometric chainrings on your bike. You imagine our two team mechanics every night get told, ah, oh, I want to change front chainring size tomorrow. So that means they have to change the free hub body from a Shimano HG normal, like 11 to 36 or whatever it was, cassettes we were using to the SRAM XD mountain bike style driver to fit the, the nine to 32 cassette on. They're going to change five chainring bolts for the front chainring. Then they've got to change the chain length and the cassette on that free heart body like and they've got to do that for seven or eight guys like it was um an absolute nightmare that that whole year of equipment wise and the disc brakes was kind of just a an extra element of that i even had a rear through axle fall out on me once and the rear wheel just dropped out on the cobbles at um De Parner or one of those early season races in belgium it was like just the the whole system just wasn't wasn't ready for us and now i've been to the other side where since then 19 well the limited racing i had did do in 19 and 20 and um and 21 and now this year too still being on rim brakes when we're literally the only the only team still on rim brakes in the peloton um and i love rim brakes i think if everybody's still on rim brakes no problem whatsoever but the problem is when you get chucked in a peloton in the wet with some tricky descents and tricky corners and the guys in front of you can stop and you can't stop that's where the <laughs> That's where the fun stops on uh, on rim brakes. There's been quite a few races this year. Well, three or four wet days this year that I'm like, okay, I'm actually shitting my pants now on rim brakes. This is not fun anymore. And it, it actually starts to cost you performance-wise because you can't slow down at the same rate as the guys around you. So you've got to start braking, you know, 20, 30 metres before every corner than the other guys. So in a race that you're fighting for position, you just keep giving, giving up position. It's been something that's been a bit of a headache but but next year the team is moving to to rim brake uh, to disc brakes to keep up with um with that side of things but for sure they still have their benefits they're lighter um maintenance is so much easier like from a training bike perspective it's, it's nice because 
it's easier to wash and take care of and you don't have to worry about that really annoying disc brake squeal that it plagues the peloton now <laughs> i start, actually started campaigning there should be uh fines for guys with noisy disc brakes in races because it's so can be quite um punishing to the ear holes at times <laughs> where can i sign up for that i would be in i would be signing that uh, hell yeah hey i'm looking a little bit into the future um after that uh, tremendous success at the commonwealth games did you want it to try to turn world to a professional do you have a chance do you have contacts what's the future next year for you like um, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to, um, and it was something that I, I weighed up for a long time because I was the the two sides of the spectrum for me was the team I was with. It helped get me to the level of being able to to win the Commonwealth Games and give me the flexibility to, to do that. And the and the track stuff around it was something that that not every world tour team would be prepared to give give someone, especially that that's thirty one versus someone that's um, you know twenty two. Um, so I was, I had to weigh up a, a, a lot, the, the loyalty side of things and, um, and also just, I, I feel like I've got more to achieve in the sport and that's why I was kind of definitely weighing it up because it would be nice to go to the, the top level races with a bigger team. Um, but at the same time, I knew that if I was doing that, I would immediately be slotting into a, into a support role versus being able to. To race for myself um, with guys supporting me to do that and don't get me wrong I, I love racing for other guys like it's been it's been the cool thing this year it's a group of kiwis we're all good mates we we race well together and uh, i think that that camaraderie is what has helped us get so many results across the team like i can go to a race and if i'm not i can <laughs> i can line up knowing i can support one of the other guys and and help them get a result which is which is great and something that It can be frustrating at times in cycling when you're prepared to work for somebody else and they're just not up to the task or they give up or they're not prepared to, to hurt themselves as much as they need to on that particular day. Like it can be so frustrating when you when you throw your personal resource at, at helping this guy and, and they're not prepared to, to do the same for themselves. Um, that's something we haven't, haven't had at this team and it's been hugely refreshing for me. And I think um, also just the fact that You know, if this this year had it happened um, last year and it was, you know, Tokyo Olympics had gone how I wanted to go and I was ready to actually start to step away from the track, it might have been a different decision for me. Um, but now, like, Paris Olympics is only two years away. I've got a lot of, of unfinished business, I feel, on the track and that elusive gold medal um, with the team that we have from New Zealand, I think, is not something that's that's out of reach. So it was it just felt like a mistake to... To potentially throw away that that opportunity now that we're getting close to that. I mean, I know I'm getting on, and it's it's probably one of the few years that I've actually had the chance to to take a contract with a world tour team, um, and they might not come again. So it was a, it was a big decision to to say no uh, and, and stick with my current team, even though they are sticking up to to Pro Conti. I realise there's still a difference between Pro Conti and, and World Tour, and would have been nice to. Yeah, for sure, it would still be nice at some stage of my career to, to, to be at that top level. But for now, I'm, I'm pretty happy staying where I am and helping develop this great team that we do have and, and bring some, help bring some younger Kiwi talent up through the ranks too. Wow. You don't hear that every day. I mean, normally, <laughs> um, you know, loyalty kind of goes out the window. But, you know, I, I was, I was going to ask something very, very similar. I mean, with the Olympics right around the corner, 
you know, jumping in the world tour for a year or two, like would, would probably be, you know, negative towards, towards your ability to work towards that. So man, big respect, um, on many different <laughs> levels for, for your, for your answer there. But I mean, okay. It's the beginning of November. Um, got the Olympics coming up in a couple of years, you know, four time, you know, four gold medals in the, the Commonwealth games. Are you taking an off season right now or are you being talked into doing all the, the track stuff? Because obviously it seems like those invitational track meets, um, can be quite lucrative. Um, what is, what are you actually doing right now? And, you know, gosh, we didn't even ask you this at the beginning of the show. Like, where are you right now? Uh, I'm currently in Droida. Um, live here with my wife and, and son. Um, it's been, uh, yeah, it's end of season for me was the, the track world championships a couple of weeks ago. So it was, um, as you say, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in the, in the road off season that comes up with the track. And, um, it was a really like, I'm when it comes to racing, I'm kind of a, a yes man. Like if I get an opportunity, I'll be like, yep, yeah, I'll come, I'll do it. I'll make it work. And it kind of happened last year. I got asked the day before the, the Copenhagen uh, three day if I wanted to come and come and race. And I was like, yeah, I'll make it work. Jumped on a flight, flew from Barcelona up to Copenhagen and, and raced there. And we actually got second, which was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, this year I I was like, okay, what the only thing that, I, that was different last year is when it came to uh december i was like okay it's time to shut it down and, and have a rest so i took all of december off the bike um and i had the luxury of doing that quite late in the piece like because i wasn't actually starting racing until the end of march because uh, that's when our program didn't start until so i didn't have to worry about any of the super super early season stuff and um now that the team's stepping up to pro Conti, we're going to have a lot more racing next year. And so I was pretty conscious of still getting that, getting that off season. So I made the, made the hard decision to just say no to, <laughs> to that track racing and just uh, focus on taking some, taking some rest now and sitting here talking to you guys, enjoying a glass of whiskey and haven't touched the bike for a couple of weeks. And yeah, another, another week or so to go. And then I'll start to turn the pedals again. I mean, it's, it's probably a good sign that I'm already kind of itchy to get back on the bike. So at least, um, the passion and motivation still there. It's just making sure you do take that necessary break because, um, yeah, it's quite easy to, to cook it up and be, be done by March or April. If you don't uh, take that, take that break. <laughs> so now that you have your off season, that means also more family time, right? You mentioned uh, your wife and your son. Um, sooner or later, you will have to make a decision where your son is going to grow up in Europe at some international school or kindergarten or back home in New Zealand. Where do you see that or how do you see that? And, and uh, in a long time, you're going to stay in Europe or you think that nah, I'm from New Zealand um, and that's where I want to live the rest of my life? Yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult thing where all our friends and family, we grew up with a, a back in New Zealand and that's something that having a young son has definitely been a challenge for especially my wife when I'm off. It's easy for me jumping on a plane and buggering off and leaving her at home with him. But um, yeah, we're actually going through the the process at the moment of, which is, I say it's been time off, but it's still been a lot of paperwork and admin and everything. We're going through the process of uh, moving up to Andorra at the moment to, to set up a base there. And um, there's a lot of good international schools. So it's nice to know that if we 
if I kept, I'm still racing in three or four years' time, that he can start start school at international school and um, yeah, get a more well-rounded education. I mean, it's it's kind of scary to think that he already knows more Spanish and Catalan than than I do. As <laughs> he's only three years old, <laughs> kind of say something about my my lack of uh, applying myself outside of cycling. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing that. Probably New Zealand will eventually be be our home, but for the time being, it's it's cool to have this opportunity to be able to live in Europe. It's something that you don't get um, through every stage of your life, so it's something that my wife and I just I'm lucky that she's on board with it too, and we can just make the most of it and and enjoy it while we have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, you got to soak it in. I know you know it, it feels like a a job rather than a sport, and you know you're making so many sacrifices, being away from your friends, your family, you know your wife, you know doing it solo quite often. I I think all of our wives kind of went through that, but uh, soak it all in, man, because I have to say I I do miss Europe. Uh, we moved back here six years ago, and. Mm-hmm. You know, at the towards the end, you were just like, I can't wait to get back to America. But um, it was a part of my life that was was amazing. You know, being around amazingly fit athletes, and you know how many friends you made, and just how much you learned over there, and then how most importantly the experiences that you were able to give your kids. Um, I went out to dinner with my uh, my oldest daughter up in New York City. We went up to the Star Trek event uh, on Tuesday night, and then we did another charity event, um, fundraising event for the Epic Foundation last night. And the, a lot of the people, including the CEO of the the Epic Foundation, is French. And we went out to uh, to eat with a couple of the the French people. And I hadn't really spoken Fran- French in, in like six years, like maybe once every six months or something like that. But seeing her be able to just just sw- flip that switch and start speaking French again to Parisians was like, you know, she had a pretty cool opportunity that my profession gave her. So, so soak it all in, man, and give those kids those experiences that uh, are are quite unique when you when you think about it, especially when you're uh, when you're our age. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool story, and I think it's definitely something we we are mindful of. Like, even our son has—he was born in Spain. He spent his first birthday back in New Zealand when we were back there for during the the COVID period, and then second birthday was in Belgium, third birthday in the UK at the Commonwealth Games, and now he's back here again. So he's definitely a, a well-traveled little youngster. <laughs> um. Quick question about your race program. Do you know anything, what races you're going to have next year? Any chance we're going to see you at any World Tour races where you got the wildcard invitation? Or you you guys don't know too much yet about your race program next year? Uh, we don't know a huge amount yet. It's kind of through that, still through that finalizing period of the UCI for all the, the paperwork and whatnot. But at least um, Bolton Equities, Black Spoke has ticked all the boxes for, for the paperwork and they've yeah they've made the first cutoff list for to be a a pro tour team which is cool um and yeah i mean i'd at the moment i've penciled in that i'd like to start my season at the the saudi tour i think that would be a great race for us to to go to but it's still just 
bit of wait and see, see what, we still have to wait what invites we're going to get, but for sure we, we're hoping to be amongst some World Tour races, like maybe even some of those um, sort of semi-classics in Belgium. Uh, end of March would be nice to, to be in one or two of those, so we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Well, now that now that you mentioned it, um, tell us a little bit more about your sponsor. I mean, you're you're super loyal, you're super appreciative, but Bolton Equities Black Spoke Pro Cycling. What is it? Um, it's basically a gesture from Mr. Murray Bolton, who's um, one of New Zealand's wealthiest men, and he's he's in his early 70s um just a, a super super nice guy like he it's nice that you can have a team owner that you can you know he picks up the phone and rings you and see how's you're going and kind of that connection is is pretty special as well and probably makes it a, a bit easier to be a part of too because he's he's on board he wants to see us succeed and that's why the team exists um He's he's done well for himself, and I think this is his way to. He just wants to see um, see Kiwis doing well in sport, and um, yeah, it's just I don't really have a huge amount more to say other than the fact that he's just a bloody legend, and he's um, you know he's doing a lot of great things for New Zealand sport, and it's the first time that New Zealand's ever been able to have a professional continental level team. Um, and it's purely come from from him wanting to do it. So I think you know, like with most cycling teams, they kind of rely on um, on basically a wealthy businessman bankrolling it. It's kind of probably in some ways highlights that you know some of cycling isn't isn't exactly ideal with how the, the business model works for for sponsors. But uh, we're pretty lucky to to have him and and be behind us and yeah, make it all happen. Alrighty, I got two more easy questions. First of all, Sweet. after four gold medals, did you get knighted by your prime minister? Are you <laughs> Sir Aaron Gate of New Zealand? And second question, what is the story behind that fantastic mullet? I can see. I always wanted to ask that question from the first second I saw you on our screen. Uh, no knighting yet. The closest I got was a shout out on our prime minister's Instagram uh, feed. So that was that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and the mullet the mullet started um, when I was doing the track Champions League in November last year I was trying to grow a moustache for, for November and it's like I needed a haircut at the time so I thought bugger it my moustache was pretty terrible so I'll go for the full, full, full filthy look and shave all the sides off and um, try to accentuate the, the mullet and just kind of I've cut my own hair for quite a few years now. It's just kind of a habit I got into while I was traveling, um, and I'm and I'm a tight bastard. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, just like it started going from point to point, and I was like, oh, I should give myself a proper haircut. My wife was like, why? Just keep the mullet for a year. It'll be it'll be cool. And I was like, oh well, if the wife's encouraging it, you kind of can't say no to that opportunity. Um, and. Also, our team owner Murray has a has a mullet too, and it was funny because I was just standing on the podium at Tour of Greece, and he gave me a phone call and he'd seen a photo. He was, oh, is that a is that a mullet I see forming? And I was like, oh, thinking, oh shit, I'm going to get a bollocking for not looking very presentable. He's, like, oh mate, I love it, keep it going. So I was like, all right, the team owners, team owner, wife are both on board. It's got to keep going. So. Um, yeah, there's been lots of lots of talk that there's secret secret power, secret what's hidden in the mullet. Um, but unfortunately, it's coming to an end now because I've just uh, agreed to 
to shave it off for charity um, this this month. So um, it'll be finally coming off at the end of November. Um, so we'll see see what next year's haircut looks like. <laughs> Fear of the mullet. Fear of the mullet. Well, Aaron, it was great to meet you. Great to hear your story. Uh, we wish you all the best moving forward, especially towards the uh, the 2024 Olympics there in, in Paris. And just appreciate just getting to know you a little bit. So um, have a great rest of the offseason. Uh, make sure you finish that bottle of brown before <laughs> you do, because if you don't, you're going to just sit there and stare at it. Just get it out of the house. Suck it down. Get it in you. And um, all the best for, for next season and, and the, uh, the, the entire future. No, thanks so much, guys. It's been a genuine pleasure to talk to, talk to both of you. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Aaron Gate for being our guest today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please give us a five-star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Musser. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. 